Since the dawn of time, fairy tales have been a part of human history, culture, and religion. Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, Cinderella, Bigfoot. Some fairy tales are harmless. Others are more sinister. But there are four things all fairy tales have in common. Number one, they are used to influence and shape opinions and manipulate thoughts. And number two, they're good for business. Third, they usually tap into fear, uncertainty, and sometimes hope. And finally, fairy tales are not real. Welcome to Bigfoot Logic, a podcast where we highlight a brand new breed of fairy tales. Fairy tales that you can find not in a Disney movie, but on CNN, Fox News, and other for-profit news publications. Fairy tales created by politicians, companies, and shared across social media platforms. Fairy tales are created by big business for big business. For people in power that want to stay there. Join us, fellow logisticians, as we seek to expose fairy tales, myths, legends, and lies in the news of today. We'll talk about the facts and influences, people and power brokers, and connect some dots so you'll see who's connected to who and what. Now the news of the day benefits and serves corporate greed, political will, and personal agendas. The facts you need to make informed, logical decisions. Bigfoot logic is everywhere. Let us be your guides. Okay, so welcome and thanks for joining us today on uh, Bigfoot Logic. Today we're going to talk about the nursing shortage or the so-called nursing shortage. Um, and to start off with, I want to say that this is in no way denigrating nurses. Um, I, I personally hold nurses in the highest esteem. My mother was a nurse. My fiance is a nurse practitioner. Um, but we chose to look at this issue because if you read the news today, you'll see a lot of headlines around the nursing shortage. Um, and some of the other things you'll see is why now is a great time to be a traveling nurse. And I think that is, while it's good for the traveling nurses, I don't think it's really good for everyone else. And I think we'll get into some of that with when we go through this podcast. Well, I think the what's interesting to me about this is that I think it's indicative of of the healthcare system overall, right? You know, one of my challenges I've had with the healthcare system, and anytime they've talked about reform, and I do believe it needs to be reformed, is it fundamentally comes down to what I'm concerned with as a consumer is what my my premium is, or my copay, what it actually costs. I, I don't necessarily care whether at one hospital a device or a service or a procedure costs five thousand dollars, and at the hospital down the road it costs fifty. Because I'm not seeing that cost. That's all handled by insurance. Um, and I think that the, you know, one of the topics we, we've discussed previously and we'll probably visit again is just what the government is willing to pay in terms of putting band-aids on situations as opposed to actually addressing a situation that exists that could be solved through workforce development or other avenues that have long-term effects, long-term positive effects over time as opposed to throwing money at a problem. Does that make sense? Is that fair? Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's the government throwing money at a problem that is in large part created by private industry. So the government is sending money to private industries in a lot of cases, for-profit industries. Um, and like you said, it's not solving a long-term problem. And we'll try to explain that as we go through. Well, and I have a friend who's a traveling doctor, who's a traveling ER doctor, and he was a GP and it just was the economics for him personally to be either a GP or go and spend three weeks of three weeks at a time as an ER doctor were an order of magnitude difference in terms of the money he could make. And given how you know, his bills he had from a from medical school, 
And then the, you know, the lifestyle he wanted to provide for his family, it didn't make sense to stay as a GP. So right. you know, this, this is a problem that's existed for a while. It's just the traveling nurses is the currently hot, current hot topic that people are talking about. So we thought it was worth exploring on this podcast. So walk us through the problem. Yeah, so let's start with the healthcare system in general. So in the first episode, we talked about the pharmaceutical industry and how they're raking in the profits uh, during the COVID pandemic. Um, and, you know, here in the U.S., we're proud capitalists, right? We, we, we like to support big business. We like to believe in, you know, you make the money that you earn, um, but which is great. I'm, I'm not by any means a communist or a socialist, but I think there could be some sort of balance that we're, that we're missing. Um, and one of the things that, I, you know, you'll hear people say, I hear it from my friends a lot, is, you know, we don't want the government controlling certain things because private companies can do it just as well. And that's, I think, part of the reason the U.S., you know, has been so resistant to universal health care. We just, you know, we don't want the government mucking around with our own health or welfare. Um, and I think there are other countries that agree with this, or maybe not. Well, I think part of the issue is there's a difference, and I think this is one of the challenges we have in the U.S., is I would agree with that statement from a federal issue, right? I think the state government could play a bigger role because the state government understands, at least has a better opportunity to understand what's happening locally. Right. You know, the Department of Education has over 100,000 employees, as an example. Right. I don't really believe a person sitting in an office at the Department of Education understands the differences between teaching in Alaska versus teaching kids that are growing up in Texas versus kids in rural New Hampshire or in a city in Detroit. Right. There are just different things that you would different tools, different approaches, different things that make tech, make education fun and interesting. So. I would be one of those people who think the federal, I don't want the federal government mucking in. Um, I'm okay if the federal government empowers the states to do that. Because even with healthcare, I believe the states have a better idea of the issues that address the state. So the differences in Florida, whereas an older population is different than the issues in Seattle, which has a more health conscious, at least perception wise, health conscious population. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm uh, agnostic to whether it's at the federal level or at the state level. You, you certainly have a point with the state level, but I think there's, you know, throughout history, throughout U.S. history, at least, there's been this pattern of, you know, industries, for-profit industries are sort of led to, left to their own devices to a point where it gets um, to impact the public health and then the government has to step in. And it's not necessarily, to me, it's less whether the government is actively controlling something or whether there are checks and balances so that um, private industry isn't profiting off of your healthcare in a way that's, that has adverse effects to, to you personally. Right. Well, and I'd also argue, because I know one of the points is a lot of companies, a lot of countries have universal healthcare. I would argue on the side of that, that those countries are probably as big as some of our states. So they're not trying to mandate something across Europe, for example. They're, try- they're having universal health care in the UK, which is a much smaller population and, and demographics than, than the U.S. as a whole. Yeah, I agree to an extent. I think a lot of, a lot of cases that is the case. But if you look at the, com- the countries that do have universal health care versus those that do not, 
um, you know, we'll start with uh, alphabetically uh, the countries that have some form of universal health care, Albania, Algeria, Andorra, Antigua, Barbuda. I don't even recognize some of these countries. These are not super developed countries. Um, And then if you look at the countries that do not have universal health care, it's a pretty small list. Um, It's countries like South Africa, Iran, Egypt, Nigeria, Pakistan, uh, Yemen, Syria, China, and and even China, even though it doesn't have a universal health care system, 95% of its population is covered by some form of public health insurance. And and that hasn't changed with the legislation that... that was enacted during the Obama administration? No, no. Uh, these sources are, at least according to how, at least according to these sources, which we, you know, we can put up, um, whatever their criteria is for determining universal healthcare, U.S. does not make the list. Okay. Um, but that's fine. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure privately owned hospitals have their best interests, have their patients' best interests in mind, right? I think doctors do. I'm not sure hospital administrators do. I think that's a difference. I think doctors, whether you're a doctor at a public hospital or a private hospital, you know, if you look at reforming the way that the medical system works, then you also have to look at how the cost of medical school, right? Because you can't have a, I don't think you can have a, a state-run hospital system only in the U.S. and expect doctors who, are, who have hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt to be able to pay those off working there. Like doctors can make more in the U.S. and countries like Singapore and Hong Kong and um, that don't, that where it's a, the better people, the better surgeons get better pay. The better doctors get better pay um, is my feeling. But I do think it's, I do think there is, so we, I think it has to be addressed from how doctors are created, are trained. Right. And I think to a lesser degree, I think the same applies for nurses. And that's, that's part of the reason we think this classifies as Bigfoot logic. You know, what what we'll talk about as we're going through is nurses, it's almost like a zero sum game. It's not like you can create more nurses. Um, To to be a registered nurse is a a four-year degree, typically. Um, You can have a four-year degree in something else and then go through a shorter um, education process to turn that degree into a nursing degree, but it's not something you can just flip the switch and you have new nurses. And even if you bring in nurses from another country, uh, typically their certifications do not transfer into the U.S. So nursing shortage is more of a long-term problem than a short-term problem, and we'll, we'll talk through why that's being misrepresented in, in the news to a degree. Well, and, and to, to your point, it's not like you know, the way technology, the tech industry and manufacturing has done is they've outsourced, right? They've outsourced um, manufacturing, they've outsourced development, they've outsourced components. Um, you can't do that with medicine. You can't outsource the nursing, right? Right. Yeah. And, and that's typically the way you would, if you need to scale something rapidly, that's typically the way you do it. You you outsource it to somewhere else, but nurses need to be there in person and they um, need to be qualified and meet the certifications required in the U.S. to practice in the U.S. And it's different by state, right? It's very different by state. So, um, you know, it's interesting to look. So to be clear, only only 24% of the hospitals in the U.S. are actually for-profit. Uh, the majority of the hospitals are technically classified as a non-profit institution, but even non-profits. And those are also technically, those are usually teaching hospitals too, right? Yeah, a lot of hospitals are teaching hospitals. So my my fiance, for example, works at a teaching hospital associated with an Ivy League school here in the here in the Northeast. Um, 
but just because something is not for profit doesn't mean it's it doesn't need to bring in revenues. Um, and when we go through some of the statistics in terms of how uh, hospital staff uh, compares in the U.S. compares to the rest of the world, I think you might get a sense for where some of the where some of the issues are and why even a for a not for profit hospital in the U.S. might need to bring in more revenue than a non for profit hospital somewhere else. Ten times more often than you will the doctor. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I personally, I've never been hospitalized, thankfully, but when I've had loved ones who were hospitalized, you, the nurse is who you want to talk to. <laughs> the doctor maybe comes around once a day. Right. Um, the nurse would be coming by every hour, every couple hours, depending on how bad you are. Um, but yeah, back to the, your question around how it varies by state. So the state variation also the number of nurses per capita varies by state, but also the number of for-profit hospitals vary by state. And there seems to be at least a correlation if you look at the data. So for example, Nevada and Texas, just to pick a couple at the bottom of the list, um, over 50% of the hospitals in those two states are for-profit. In Wyoming and Vermont, there are no for-profit hospitals. So they're all either public hospitals or not-for-profit hospitals. Um <clears throat> And wh why does this matter? Well, one reason it might potentially matter is if you look at the number of nurses per capita in those states we, we picked as examples, in Nevada and Texas, there are, there are just over nine nurses for every 1,000 people in the population in those two states. In Wyoming and Vermont, there are 19 and 17 nurses per 1,000 people, respectively. So almost double the number of nurses per capita in, in, in those two states. Whether it's directly correlated to the, the for-profit hospitals or not, uh, I, I don't know for sure. But I think either way, that's a significant difference in the number of nurses per capita. Correct. Agreed. And so then we started to look at um, where how this compared to the rest of the world. So here, is, here the data gets a little bit confusing. So um, Based on, on the, the source that I used for the, the numbers I just read, which was the nurse journal, um, if you do the math, the average number of nurses per capita in the U.S. is 12 nurses per 1,000 people. Um, it, that source did not have the data for the rest of the world. So the source that we pulled the data for the rest of the world is the health system tracker. Um, and in the health system tracker, it gives us credit for 17 nurses per capita. So I'm not sure where that discrepancy comes from. Um, but either way, the it, part of the reason is the health system tracker, the data that they use came from 2017. So the, that could be the difference, the, the four-year difference. The, the nurse journal was an article from 2021. Um but the average number of nurses per capita in the entire world was uh, 14. So 14 nurses per 1,000 people of population seemed to be the average according to the health system tracker. So whether you use the numbers from the nursing journal or from the health system tracker, the U.S. either ranks just below average or just above average in terms of the number of nurses per capita. So right there. So help me understand that problem, though, because where, where I got confused on that in terms of why that matters is because that's per capita, not per people in the hospital. Like, isn't the number we should be looking at the number 
nurses per beds, maybe? Um, yeah, uh, that would be interesting to look at. I actually right, have a thousand people. How many people are in the hospital on any given time? Right. So the part of we have to look at is again, data can be sliced a thousand different ways. So it's like saying twelve or seventeen nurses per thousand people might, might be relevant because the hospital in that area is. You might have ten hospitals that have five thousand beds, or you might have one that has a hundred beds. Right. Well, and so we'll we'll talk about the number of beds per capita we, because we we have that too. But I I think the reason I wanted to well part of my thinking behind this is you'll see when we look at the like all these stats for the hospitals. I think they're probably it's probably they're the hospitals are following something like the eighty twenty rule. Like eighty percent of the time, you have enough staff, you have enough beds to handle any sort of thing that arises, but in a pandemic such as we're in now, the number of people who are hospitalized to your point goes up compared to, you know, typical years. Um, and so then you have a shortage of, you know, the news will focus on the nursing shortage, but maybe there's a different issue and maybe there's a shortage in the number of hospitals, hospital beds or doc and or doctors. And it's possible that that's really the root of the problem. Not that we have fewer nurses than are needed, because that's why. Right, it's quality. So, so it's two, there's two things to think about as we think about this. One, one is quality of care, and two is um, compensation models for nurses. So why are nurses now, why is the traveling nurse now a thing? Like why, why, is it, why is it needed on the local level from the hospital perspective? And then why is it attractive to the nurse? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's attractive to the nurses because they're making three to five times what they would make um, as a as a salaried employee working for the hospital. And anecdotally speaking, um, you know, my my fiance is actually a supervisor of nurse practitioners at the hospital that she works with, and she's dealing with. <laughs> it's at, the traveling nurse situation is actually creating a shortage in salaried nurses at her hospital because people are resigning to be, and I'm using air quotes here, traveling nurses, because it's a little bit of a misnomer. And in the past, um, traveling nurses, it's always been a thing, but it was, you sign on for, it was almost like joining the army. You sign on for X amount of time and you may know where your first assignment is, but you're not sure where your second or third assignment is in that amount of time. Um, So it's typically something that, um, you know, people would do when they're younger when they're starting their career and they don't have kids and a house and a mortgage and, and things like that. And now what's happening is um, people are quitting their jobs to be traveling nurses to go to a hospital right down the street. Oh, okay. So that is a big, that's a different type of problem, right? So it's not that they're signing up to go be a nurse in a rural community that might have a nurse shortage. They're actually leveraging the system to work at home, but to be classified differently. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's almost like the, it's, not, it's almost like the gig economy comes to nursing. You're taking the gig as opposed to the hospital. Yeah, you're, you're getting the because traveling nurses, you've all, there's always been a premium to be a traveling nurse, but that premium was partly due to the inconvenience. Like you're, you know, traveling, you're away from your family. You don't necessarily know where your next gig is going to come from. But now it's kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You're going to be a traveling nurse. But, you know, I live in New Hampshire and, you know, you're not going to leave New Hampshire. You might, right. you know, you, instead of working in Concord, New Hampshire, you're working in Manchester, New Hampshire, 15 miles away. So, so is the bigfoot. So the bigfoot logic part that applies to that is the idea of 
the problem being the trap that the the hype around traveling nurses is that all of a sudden these nurses are no longer available locally, but the reality is they are available locally. They're just reclassifying themselves in a different type of worker. So they're not getting, um, they're not an employee of the hospital. They're now a traveling nurse, but they could be in the same hospital or a hospital on the road. Right. Uh, they, uh, they can't work for the same hospital, but they can, they can work for a hospital down the road. And there's actually been, um, an entire industry that sprung up around this. So there are, um, there are a couple companies like crucial spelled with a K and snap nurse, um, which is an Atlanta based startup, uh, that, uh, is essentially a traveling nurse agency. And, um, snap nurse has seen 9,000% revenue growth in 2020. Um, and, the Washington report, Washington Post had an article. Uh, one of the quotes from that article is if 2020 was the year travel nursing took off with 35% growth over the pre pandemic year of 2019, this year, 2021 has propelled it to new heights with an additional 40% growth expected. So there's an industry that is growing and profiting off this travel nursing phenomenon. And it's at the expense of the taxpayer. The government is funding this. So the hospitals are using um, COVID relief funds to pay these higher premiums for the traveling nurses. So it's the, the Bigfoot logic is you're using government money to address a nursing shortage that doesn't exist. Um, if you follow the money, you'll see some companies are profiting. Others who are paying taxes are, are footing the bill, essentially. Right. So it's because the government is just applying money to the problem they're they're actually creating a bigger problem because you have nurses leaving their tenure, for lack of a better word, tenured position, and really just going to work down the street. So it's it's artificially creating. So is, who's so here? So here's a question for you. There. So is there a problem for the for the hospitals who are forced with either paying their their nurses more? Is the problem the nurses' wage? Or is the problem just that the government is because the pandemic is throwing money at the problem, causing a bigger problem they're not considering long term? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I think that it's the government throwing money at a Band-Aid solution that um, probably isn't even having a significant impact short term and long term. It's only going to create more problems. And I think that's why the, the data on number of doctors and hospitals and hospital beds is is important because I think it highlights that fact. So if, if you look at um, the number of hospital employed physicians, so this is not counting like your you know your family medicine doctor that you see for your routine physicals and things like this. This is doctors who uh, work in hospitals. The U.S. has um, exactly one doctor per thousand people, um, which if you compare that to other developed countries like Italy, Germany, Switzerland. Um, they all have over two, so almost twice as many hospital-employed physicians. Um, and if you look at hospitals and hospital beds, um, the average number of hospital beds, and this is also according to the health system tracker, which we referenced earlier, for every 1,000 people is five, and the U.S. is just under three. Um, likewise, for hospitals, the average number of hospitals is 33 hospitals per million people. U.S. has 17, so like almost half, uh, just over half the average. Um, so throwing money to 
pay traveling nurses more money isn't going to address either of those problems. Correct. It doesn't solve the number of hospital beds. It doesn't solve the number of doctors. Right. So it doesn't do, it It just it puts a band in the program, which is a fairly typical Bigfoot logic approach from government. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, who, and then who, who, funds, who funds that bill? Yeah, the, the government funds that bill. And ultimately, anyone who pays taxes funds that bill because that's where the government gets their money. Right. And that's one of the things that they don't, that, that people don't think about when they're looking to fund the government is they're looking to fund a government that is historically very inefficient, how it spends money. So that would be an interesting podcast too, is look at the historical record the government has and what they pay for things. Yeah. Right. Because if you look at, I mean, we're, we're having, we're continually having conversations about the debt ceiling and the, um, you know, the Congress having to pass a bill to fund the government to keep it open. Um, but I don't think anyone pays attention to, and, and they always threat, oh, these people can't go to work. Oh, so security checks won't be mailed, right? But it also means they won't be paying three times the salary for a traveling nurse when there are plenty of nurses in the rural community. Right, and I, and I, I think COVID, there are many examples in just the COVID pandemic of this. Um, you know, for example, uh, Pfizer and Moderna, which are the recommended um, vaccines in the U.S. charge an average or charge the government an average of thirty-nine dollars per dose. Um, Johnson and Johnson, by contrast, uh, it, it explicitly came out and said that their vaccine is going to be not for profit, and they charge between four and five dollars a dose. So, U.S. is overpaying by eight to ten x for the vaccines. But I have another. If I could go on a sidetrack with a may potentially amusing anecdote i i have a buddy who owns a window and door company so he makes he makes custom windows and doors for typically in uh historic buildings and things like that that would make and sense since they, he has a window and door company yes they do make windows and doors yeah yeah i would think you would be open to possibilities window window. yeah right because um, doors open windows open okay <laughs> that's a good one. Um, yeah, but okay. so in here, here in New Hampshire, we have the, the Pease uh, trade port, which is where they built submarines and naval vessels. Um, so he was contacted by them to build them a door. They, they can't send him the measurements of the door and they can't allow him to pictures of the door because it's confidential. So he has to estimate the highest possible amount a door could possibly cost so that he can cover all possibilities. He's charging the federal government, you know, multiple thousands of dollars for a door. Um, and, and that's just one, one example. I think that's, I think that's an episode. I think there's an episode on, I mean, there's always the, the and I don't know whether it's an urban myth or real that the government pays $500 for a hammer. But, but I think that's a separate issue. I think that's a, that's a, it's a good way to set up what might be a future episode. But I did. I did have a question because this is this a problem for only private hospitals, or is it a, pos- a problem for not pro- nonprofit hospitals as well? I would think it'd be a hospital a problem across the board. Yeah, I I, I don't have the data to, to support that. So my hypothesis would be it would, it, it's a, a problem across the board. But I think it's potentially exacerbated by the fact that we have so many for profit hospitals, and it's. it's Further exacerbated, I think, by one of the interesting data points that I found was um, that nearly half of all hospital in, employees in the U.S. are administrative employees. So, you know, 
number crunchers, marketing people, things like that, that aren't actually directly um, related to providing you with healthcare. And that is one area where the U.S. leads the world in, um, in the healthcare system. We are far and away number one in terms of the highest number of administrative hospital employees per capita. Does that have to do with compliance issues with HIPAA and, and the way you report and store data? Um, it, it's possible, but I mean, I think other countries have similar regulations and probably have had similar regulations in place before the U.S. did. So I, I'm sure that that accounts for some of the administrative professionals, but I think a lot of it is associated with the fact that they're businesses and they have to run like a business. And so they have to do marketing, they have to um, do advertising and finance. And there are more people who are concerned with making money and making sure the business runs correctly than with providing healthcare. At least that would be my... So I would almost think that this would be a problem more for nonprofit hospitals because a for-profit hospital would be looking at... Well, I guess maybe where I'm confused is, is who pays the cost of the traveling nurse? Is that the government that's subsidizing it? Yeah, that is the government that subsidizes it. So the for-profit... So neither hospital then has to bear the cost of it. They're just getting access to... They're just raising their hand saying, I need more nurses and the government's saying the nurses. Yeah, so according to Nashville's NPR news organization, which is WPLN, um, the states, at least in that neck of the woods, and I'd assume others are doing it too, Texas, Mississippi, and Tennessee are using their federal COVID relief money to pay hospitals the ever-rising hourly rates. Um, and this is quoting from WPLN. The state Pearson is leaving, so it interviews this uh, nurse named Pearson, is simultaneously paying to bring in a 1,000 nurses to the cost of $10 million per week. Um, and Texas, which if you remember from earlier, it has you know one of the lowest numbers of nurses per capita, is, is bringing in 4,000 traveling nurses being funded by the government, says Carrie Kroll with the Texas Hospital Association. So this is all being funded from the government. And like we said earlier, it's a zero-sum game. Those nurses are coming from somewhere. They're not being created from, from scratch. But it is, they're using the COVID funds because the, the problem, part of the problem is there are more nurses required because there's more people in hospitals because of the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. But also those states probably had fewer nurses to begin with. So now they're hit harder by the pandemic. Gotcha. Okay. What else do we need to cover with this Bigfoot logic as it applies to traveling nurses? Um, I think we, I think we covered anything, everything. Um, I, I just think this is another example of like we talked about Bigfoot logic and how if you follow the money, sometimes things aren't as they seem like you were pointing out jaded government spending money to bail out private institutions, um, lines the pockets of some, Yet it doesn't seem to address any of the long-term issues. Um, so, you know, the next pandemic hits, the next major catastrophe when hospitals are maxed out, are we really going to be any better off I, by paying traveling nurses more? I, I don't think so. I think we'll be in a similar situation. Gotcha. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us for this episode of, of uh, Bigfoot Logic, where we looked at the issue of traveling nurses and its broad implications for how the government is spending money um, for healthcare in the pandemic. Um, I think our next episode, our next episode, we're going to be looking at trust. The, the, there's a popular meme out there, which, which strikes me as Bigfoot logic that people are saying, I don't know what's in my aspirin. I don't know what's in my Gatorade. I don't know what's in this. So I don't have to know what's in my vaccine. So, um, well, we're not going to talk about the, this is not, this will not be a COVID issue. This will be about 
that meme and how that's a classic example of Bigfoot logic that is being shared and populated across social media. Any last words? Famous last words? Make them famous. I would say one thing, one thing I say is, yeah, you are being lied to, but a lot of times it's not the people who you think are lying to you. And that's, I think, an underlying theme with some of this. Yeah, it's be careful who's here who you trust. All right, well, thanks everyone, and we'll talk to you next time on Bigfoot Logic. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of Bigfoot Logic. Please subscribe and like the podcast on your platform of choice, of course, and leave a review if you feel so inclined. Also, let us know if you spot a Bigfoot out there that defies logic that you think we should investigate in a future episode. More information about the topic we discussed today, as well as links to past episodes and some really fine Bigfoot Logic merch, can be found on our website, BigfootLogic.com. Until next time, remember, it's always a good idea to open your mind before opening your mouth.